This is Southeast Asia Crossroads, an educational podcast from the Center for Southeast Asian Studies at Northern Illinois University. From music to maps, money and modernity, this is where ideas come to life. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of Southeast Asia Crossroads. I'm your host, uh, Eric Jones, and uh, with me in studio is a friend and colleague, uh, Micah Morton. Welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here, Eric. It's quite a commute for you, unlike our other... (laughs) (laughs) It it is cold and windy today on the... Yeah, right. On the NIU uh, campus. I almost got blown up, blown away. You do. It's this the season where, uh, like, it's it's a faculty member in anthropology here, we're so happy to have, uh, and yeah, that was the time of the year where you start questioning, uh, the, the, the latitude that we live at. Right. So it's like, Hmm, it's be nice, but it's, but it's, you know, coming from being in Madison, Wisconsin for <laughs> six years of the PhD, it's, uh, that helps. So it's like, milder. It's in, milder. In a comparative yeah, sense, like, yeah, it's always worse somewhere. Um, but, uh, yeah, with welcome and to the studio and, uh, we're excited to jump in a topic that is. That is, uh, much of Southeast Asian studies is understudied comparatively, but I think this is really interesting and really understudies, uh, studied your, your, uh, research project, um, reframing the borders of belonging, crypto nationalism in the Aka world of the upper Mekong region, I think uh, fits that bill perfectly. Um, so maybe for our listeners who might not know, give us kind of drop us in and a kind of a time and a place, uh, Unpacking that uh, the the Aka world, who who what are the Aka, um, and what do we know? Mm. So uh, you know, broadly speaking, the Aka are a Tibeto-Burman speaking people, Tibeto-Burman language family. Uh, estimates of population: we're talking about seven hundred thousand plus, maybe okay. seven hundred thirty thousand individuals uh, living across the borderlands of Southwest China. What is today Southwest China? Eastern Myanmar, Burma, Shan State, especially um, northern part of Thailand, uh, northwest Laos, and even a part of um, northwest Vietnam as well. Uh, but in but in China and Vietnam, Aka um, are not categorized officially recognized as Aka. Rather, they're they're lumped together as part of a larger oh, group okay. called the Hani, H A N I, which is a larger collective group. Um, that's how they're known in Vietnam and in in, chi- in China. Um, and the, the Aka in China, at least compared to the Hani. Are historically a less, less Chinese, less Han Chinese, less Sinicized uh, group, and so that's that gives you a sense of perhaps why they were grouped under this larger umbrella uh, of Hani. But they have an they have an ancestral yeah. genealogy that that actually links together at some point in the distant past as well. Are they? Is this an, is this a good example of a of a people for like the historiography is thinking about you know the the time and the place before sort of modern nation state that uh, or sort of mandala like. Um, Kingdom where or or identity that that um, we said oh they're scattered across these countries but the, the these countries sort of came far far after the Aka is are they a good example of this kind of what identity was like before sort of the nation state carved them up into these these categories that don't really fit fairly well in every case yeah yeah sure absolutely I mean um, they they for all intended purposes, until very recently, I would say, and even even at present for many of these individuals, they have more in common with uh, their fellow, their ethnic Aka kin, 
across these borders than say with uh, lowland Thais or lowland Burmese or or Han Chinese. Um, but that but that's and in some ways that's in tension with the that's in 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 a tension with the national um, amb- ambitions of sort of right them all we're we're all fellow Thai or we're all fellow Chinese and where huh. they're feeling identity across borders. But but you know but we're kind of in this moment in in Southeast Asia where. Um, Regionalism is, is is a big push for regionalism under the umbrella of ASEAN. Um, there's an incredible push coming from China, sort of regional economic integration, and so groups like the ACA. I mean, they they have been trans-regional yeah. for for, for centuries, if not millennia. So, um, in in some ways, we're seeing ACA on the ground uh, playing a kind of grassroots role in promoting and continuing to promote these kinds of trans-regional developments, whether it's, you know, the coffee coming from northern Thailand to eastern Burma or rubber coming in from southwest China to northwestern Laos. And so some of that's being facilitated by these older um, trans-regional ties. And But yeah, but they are, there are complications too. There are, there, are, there are, you know, I mean, my work, generally speaking, I didn't um, play up or see as many tensions with these um, subnational projects. I, I, my, my, my findings are, generally speaking, you know, ACA are... Um, their identities are, are multiple. They have been multiple for so they they, for a long they're, time. they wear these many hats kind of more seamlessly than we might imagine. Like yeah, yeah. Like and there's but but not, that's not to say that their national position. We'll probably get into this later. Have um, in ways what would you say shaped their trans regional transnational work in ways that you know kind of some in some ways restricted in other ways allow for certain possibilities, new kinds of possibilities. Um, so thinking about language, like language, for example. I know, I know that's something yeah. you, you may you, you may ask about. Um, you know, younger Aka throughout the region um, are generally learning in the national educational systems, whether it's in China, whether it's in Thailand, Laos, Burma, um, and they're gradually losing, I would say, fluency in Aka language, which which remarkably is remarkably similar, I would say, across borders. You know, th- these are these are a group who do have they've the, maintained the, the, the linguistic same, the same of, rates of language loss are happening as a generational. Well, no, I'm just saying that I'm saying the Aka language. If you look at it okay. across borders, it's 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 still communicable. You know, people from Aka coming from Southwest China. I mean, I've seen this in my, myself not time and time again yeah. from distances, you know, of several hundred kilometers, are still able to communicate, even having long histories of separation. Um, but and that and it, it, there there are commonalities. Just there are we are seeing these experiences, this sort of breakdown in um, particularly in the transmission of the language. From the older generation to the younger is, is is something that's becoming a crisis. I would say at the moment, whether in rural Southwest China, uh, rural Northern Thailand, um, and you can add the culture as well, yeah, as, as the language, sort yeah. of, you know, medium breaks down. So the young kids in the village in Southwest China, just like in Northern Thailand, in the villages and in the urban centers, increasingly um, are speaking Han Chinese with each other, Mandarin Chinese with each other, or Lowland Thai, Bangkok and maybe Thai. culture and popular culture being pulled in in different ways than. Their their parents and grandparents might have been. Uh, I mean, I I think they just have they have um, what would you say a lot more influence from mainstream Thai or Chinese or Burmese society, especially through media, you know, through the internet, through through television, um, through school, and you know, one big a big factor too is um, a lot of the young kids um, are spending time and living in boarding schools in the lowland towns away from the village. This has been this has been going on for a while in Thailand. It's beginning to happen more recently in China, um, and that that's playing a tremendous role. I mean, so kids from the age of five and six, right, are going and living in boarding schools in in, in, in lowland towns and cities in, in China. Trans, that's a pretty transformational age. Yeah, too, from like, yeah. Monday through yeah. Friday, living and living on the school, staying in the school, um, 
and there's this tremendous gap, you know, that is building up when they return to the village between the elders, the elders and the younger. Um, and that goes along with language. It goes along with the culture, the traditions, and so on. Um, that being said, um, still, I don't. It's not in. A, it's not in a. It's not in a moment of crisis. It's not as we see here, say in North America, with you know indigenous languages and cultures. It's not the same kind of right. crisis yet. But it could. It could, in the near future, move there. But my, you know, but my work is looking at sort of an attempt by Aka from different parts of the region to come together and to to talk about these issues, find ways of dealing with, it, particularly with cultural loss and language yeah, loss. So We've talked about uh, kind of maybe give our listeners a, this interesting story of the, you know, your your first serious engagement with uh, academic get together that's trying to wrestle with this and other problems. Right. So um, this was in August of 2008, and it was in the um, the border northern border town of Thailand with Myanmar, Burma, called Takilek Mamasai on the Thai side, um, and basically a group of Aka, uh, including. Um, from coming from Burma, just across the border, Takilek and Shan State, a number coming from Shan, from uh, southwest China, from northwestern Laos, and also from northern Thailand, um, including NGO, uh, non-governmental organizational staff, uh, including um, some religious missionaries, uh, especially those working on the Thailand side, Protestant missionaries, um, some some lower level government officials, civil servants from Burma and China, and then also. Um, some ritual practitioners, for example, like uh, there was one shaman there, for example, from northwestern Laos. Um, they they were they came together, um, and they had invited. I was sort of invited, kind of, because uh, I had been, um, I had come to know um, a couple, an Aka couple, themselves a transnational Aka couple. The, the husband, Ayu Jinhua Wang, um, who now is actually a, uh, I think he's now associate professor at Yunnan Yunnan Minzu University in China, but he's originally from. Far southwest China, rural, rural rubber-growing village um, anthropologist uh, who did his PhD at U- University of California, Riverside. And I had actually, there's a longer back log yeah. to this, but I was at University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I went to a um, small, you know, like wine and cheese gathering at a somebody who was doing the master's there in Southeast Asian <laughs> Studies. And one of their friends was visiting, who was at UC Riverside, and I was telling her about my work with Aka, and she said, oh, do you know this guy, Ayu? And I said, no. And, you know, she put us in touch and one thing led to another. But anyway, his his wife um, is um, a prominent human rights activist in Thailand named Miju uh, Jutimemolagu. Um, and uh, I was initially looking at issues of citizenship because in, in the Thai context, which is it's, it's a bit unique in the region, um, there's still estimates of something like 200 plus thousand um, Aka and other indigenous uplanders in the region lack um, full legal citizenship status. And so that was the initial foray into dealing in, in, in my, my interests and my engagements with Aka. And I was involved in some citizenship surveys that were um, funded by indirectly by UNESCO and some local NGOs. I kind of got pulled in that, that particular direction. Um, but anyway, the, the, wife, the wife of this couple, Miju, um, invited me to this meeting in Maasai just to come along and to see to see what they were doing. and But there was another um, scholar at the time who was a Ph.D. student at the University of Hawaii, Jake Terrell. Um, he subsequently finished his Ph.D. Um, he, was do, he was documenting the archaic chanting texts of, um, of ritual reciter priests in northern Thailand. But anyway, he was brought in by um, a, a number of the organizers to talk about the comparative example of the Hmong, H-M-O-N-G, um, because uh, this meeting, the, the 
purpose of this meeting was to negotiate a common ACA writing system, a unified ACA writing system or orthography. Um, up into that time period, the predominantly used writing system was one that used these special diacritical markers for the tones. Uh, it was developed by Paul Lewis, who was a U.S. Baptist missionary working. Actually, fascinating story, a whole other podcast. He just passed away about two years ago. Oh. He was in Claremont. He was in the Pilgrim's uh, House, a retirement center for Protestant missionaries. But he began, he and his wife Elaine worked among Aka in um, Chengdu region from the 1940s up until about 1962. Subsequently were kicked out of Burma. You know, there was the um, Socialist Revolution. Um, I think they were in the U.S. for a little while, but then they re-established their, their camp in Thailand. Like like many Aka as well, yeah, yeah. Who, who were fleeing war and conflict and violence, um, resettled in Thailand. And, and then he continued till 1988 when he um, retired from the missionary service. But he took as his main um, purpose in working with Aka um, was to develop uh, what he, he saw as the first writing system. There was actually another writing system developed by uh, Catholic Italian missionaries in the same region in the 1920s. He doesn't really give them credit, but they, he, so he's really, I would say the second. Um, and, and, and like a lot of the, you know, missionaries to the, one of the end goals is to get the Bible in, in their original language. Is that part of the end goal? He, one of them? He wouldn't say that, but that certainly was one of the goals. He, he was, to give him credit, he actually did a, um, a PhD in anthropology, applied anthropology later later in his career during one of his furloughs back to the U.S. University of Oregon. Um, and he, he, he very much saw himself as a development, development first conversion later kind of kind of okay. figure. So he, he would say things like, you know, I'm, I'm when I'm working with Aka, helping them to, um, you know, help to uplift their status. And for him, he saw he saw giving them a writing system and literacy as a kind of a key to uplifting their status, whether in Burma and Thailand, relative to the lowland majorities who he um, he argues, you know, saw them as primitive lesser peoples because of their illiteracy. Okay. Um, yeah. So so there are a lot of motives. Yeah, 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 yeah. But he would say things like, you know, um, as I'm working with them and helping them on education issues, uh, which he did until he, until the day of until he died, he was still sending funding, for example, to um, for a few a small number of Aka in Laos to get to get an education in the university system and so forth. Um, but uh, anyway, so he he would say, you know, as I'm doing this work, if they want to hear about the love of Jesus, then I'm I'm happy to share that, you know, my my experiences sure. and, and to slowly bring. But he, but he had he had a he was. Um, he also, there were some other missionaries um, associated with the former China Inland Mission, the over, over, Overseas Missionary Fellowship, OMF, who had been also been kicked out of China post, you know, Communist Revolution in the 50s. And for them, it was purely about um, conversion. And so, and, and they were also, they also, they were called yeah. um, the Nightingales with the terms, Gene and uh, Peter Nightingale. Um, I think Peter, Peter was actually shot in the, um, by, uh, at one point in, in, in the uplands when it was, a pretty rough, rough space. Um, but anyway, their, I mean, their objective was purely conversion. Um, and I know that Paul and the, the Lewis's and the Nightingales, you know, they had their own, their tensions and conflicts, even as they were competing with, you know, in terms of converts and so forth. But you, you know, you did yeah. know that um, in, in Christianity isn't the only one, but um, what were the sources of some of the factionalism that goes on in, in defining the Aka world? Sure, sure. So, I mean, d- in terms of, Christianity, um, the thing about the Aka compared to a lot of other upland indigenous groups in the region is uh, they converted in large numbers relatively late in time, relatively more recently, especially 
post 1980s, you could say, almost kind of paralleling the uh, fall of the bamboo curtain, right? The sort of post Cold War period, as we began to see more regional um, integration, uh, but also more heightened nation state integration throughout the region, with the exception of China. I mean, China is kind of exceptional in many ways because of the strong presence of the state, you know, from 1950s onward. Yeah. Even though there are some, um, essentially, if you look in, in the in the China context. If you the closer you get to the borders, especially the southwestern borders in the Mekong region, the more um, you see of linguistic and cultural sort of um, preservation. I would say, even as those things have been changed and modified, so so you know, Aka living in the border regions are, are more likely to have retained, for example, their ancestral altars than those who are closer to some of the urban centers um, where the communist party um, had more direct control and they uh, had more authority over local. Uh, cadres who were supervising this, you know, anti-superstitious campaign, superstition campaigns, and so forth. Um, it wasn't until really the end, the post 1980s, I would say, in Thailand and parts of Burma, um, that large numbers of Aka began converting to Christianity and different to different denominations. Right, so that's so you see, depending on the denominations, and not even even within the Protestant Baptist denominations, you have these schisms, which are based on the. Uh, who, who the original converter was. Some of it even depends on, so you even have, um, wow. there's one village at present that we, me, my, my, um, my wife and I, scholar, um, Hai Ying Li, Aka scholar from Southwest China, we did work in one, one northern Thai village called um, Lojapu or Doi Chang. Um, it's a major coffee growing village in, in, and now also a major tourist destination domestically in Thailand. Um, apparently there's about, since COVID has hit, that village, the, the road going up to the village, it's a, probably about a, I don't know, 25-minute drive, I don't know, 15 kilometers is now, which before was just open fields and just an open road, um, has been, there have been something like 21 or more coffee shops have been built <laughs> alongside that road to cater to the tourists okay. who are coming in primarily. This, this is, this is something. Are they, are they selling, they're selling beans or are they selling everything like? No, they're, they're selling um, cappuccinos. Okay, uh, right. Because. This village, Lojapu, we're getting we're kind of getting off track, but but that's okay if, if you're okay with that. Yeah. From the night from from the 1980s, they were the site of a major um, develop international development project, the German Thai Highland Development Project, and they introduced coffee. Um, other other things initially, but this is, so mo- it, this is it wasn't it wasn't cultivated heavily before that. No, prior to that time, um, it was actually a major opium producing uh, space and place, and not and not only by Aka, there were Hmong there, Lisu, really a multi ethnic space. Hmong uh, had since moved on. Lisu are still there, and uh, but still present. people getting their fix now with coffee. <laughs> coffee, coffee now. Coffee is now dominated. Um, so they, they even have, uh, and they have had for the past probably 15, 20 years. They have their own roasters on site. I mean, they have a whole factory. So it's one of these unique mm, spaces. Yeah, and they have multiple, good. multiple factories um, within the village of competing against each other <laughs> for markets yeah. and so forth. So if you can imagine this upland space. But it's a village of about six thousand individuals. But within that village, so there's a little gold rush of coffee, Java rush. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But but apparently, um, again, this is another topic I need I need to spend some more time on. Apparently, a lot of these Aka entrepreneurs, at least, are in, in heavily heavily in debt to Thai Thai banks and institutions. And so, um, apparently, most of the land now up on the in the upland regions is owned by outsiders. Yet, that because m- because they've leveraged that against the loan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet, yet um, that land is there's no officially 
this this is in probably 5,000 plus feet or so, uh, which is well in the area that the Thai government um, does not issue land titles for. It's all it's all considered state land, so it's sort of it's it's usufruct. I mean, uh, it, it's a kind of ambiguous yeah. space and place. So it's you know it's heavily it's heavy priced. It's heavy real estate, but yet it, it it's not um, legally it's not land that can be titled and, and sold and so on. But yet that's what they've been doing for for years now. Um, but anyway, so there's that. Within that village, um, we documented at least seven divisions along the lines that we sort of, sort of we saw it as religio political divisions. Um, there was a Buddhist faction, uh, kind of on the on the edge, on the side, small. Then there was a Protestant Korean um, sect or group, um, and that was affiliated with one particular church established by a Korean missionary. Um, who basically was, you know, he would he would he would give land, he would give resources to people to come and join his particular community and church. Oh. Then there was a Lisu Christian um, community. Then there was a Catholic Aka community centered on a church, um, and they had one section of the village. And then there were two competing um, Protestant Baptist Aka sects. One was the Aka Church of Thailand, one of the oldest Christian associations of Aka, and then there was a more recent um, Aka. Um, outreach Fellowship AOF, which is a prominent sort of a missionary international missionary um, organization. So they had, I mean, Christianity created divisions within villages, uh, but also sort of subdivisions in terms of within the Christian factionalism. And different Aka have different kinds of funders. You know, these Christian missionary Aka, and it's now the missionary field among Aka is largely dominated by Aka themselves, um, and they have different sources of funding. Um, and they're competing with each other. Um, but other divisions, um, you could say some are more, more longstanding. For example, um, among Aka, Aka are a, a patrilineal um, descent group, so they trace their ancestry through the father's, um, father's side of the family. Um, and uh, there's a naming tradition whereby um, all the children are given, usually, usually the name, the first names, which are genealogical, have two syllables. Um, and the second syllable of father's name becomes the first syllable of all this, all the, all these children. Um, so, you know, you may have somebody named Ape, uh, he may have a daughter, they'll take the second syllable, Pe, and they'll, and they'll add another new syllable to the second part of that. So Ape's children could be Pelu, Peo, Pau, and so forth. And, and then the sons, you know, they'll, oh. they'll marry and they'll have children, all their children will take, again, the, the second syllable of their names will become the first syllable of their children's names, um. And what this does is it's uh, the Aka, traditionally, historically speaking, and still many at present, take great pride in um, the fact that they have internally memorized um, the names of their ancestors, Patrilinia, going back to a primal ancestral creator, creatress, uh, Apumie. Um, in some cases, uh, I've, heard, um, I've heard some elders sit down with other elders, especially those coming from far distances, one of the first things they'll do, traditionalist, is is they'll sit down and they'll recite their genealogies. They'll, they'll kind of have it's a kind of way of saying you know um, getting to know each other because at some point in time, those cross paths they cross paths and, yeah. and so they recognize this sort of cross border ancient ancient kinship and sometimes it cross paths at interesting spaces and times and um, so so that that ties them together right into this longer. Aka identity, which goes into the past and the present, you know, geographically, it spreads across the region and also into the future. Um, but at the same time, at least in northern Thailand and parts of Burma um, and parts of Laos, I would say, the village identity is very strong. And, and so is the clan identity. So um, 
and the movement that I was looking at, this, this sort of Aka International movement, in many ways was an attempt to. Um, are these are these are neo traditionalist? This, this would be this, this would be the neo traditionalist movement. Yeah, I guess yeah. you do a better job of defining that than than I would for our listeners. Sure, sure. Um, so, beginning roughly, roughly, uh, I would say again, almost, almost sort of paralleling the uh, the end of the Cold War, the, the you know pulling up of the bamboo curtain with China, um, the sort of re engagement in the region, more formal engagement in the region. Um, there began to be a concern among a significant number of Akka from different parts of the region with this issue of language and cultural loss. And in Thailand, paralleling Christian conversion, um, but also paralleling uh, heightened integration to nation states. So, you know, the, the young people going to the ed- educational systems for the first time, maybe in the 60s, 70s, but especially by the 80s. Um, so this, and this movement was actually being driven by uh, middle-aged and younger Akka who, had, who themselves had been through these national educational systems, um, and uh, and they they were they were also um, involved in uh, there were some NGOs established in the 1970s in northern Thailand, one of which was a foundation um, called the Mount People's Foundation for Culture and Development in Thailand, MPCDE, and the founder of that or the co-founder I should say um, was actually a uh, a Dutch anthropologist who, who was a former Catholic priest actually Leo Alting van Gessel. Fascinating individual, um, and I, I have I have an unpublished manuscript that he that he didn't quite was not able to finish. And his wife, who was Aka, um, I talk with her. I just, when I when I get around to it, you know, trying to work on that and and have that published posthumously. But um, he um, he worked with a number of leading um, Aka intellectuals, Thai intellectuals, including Siva Sulak uh, Sivarak, a prominent social critic, uh, engaged Buddhist in northern Thailand at the time, uh, but also academics in northern Thailand, and they established this. This, this foundation basically working um, on um, development issues, but also from his perspective that the key thing was um, language and cultural preservation. And um, Do you think going to those state schools had, had heightened their worries about the law, potential loss of those cultural ways? Well, I, th- I think that they were seeing it. They were seeing it firsthand. Um, they were seeing... Um, with, especially with Christianity, Christian conversion, they were seeing the discarding of ancestral altars. They were seeing the abandonment of yeah. the annual yeah. twelve round of, rit- of rituals where you call on the ancestors. Um, but then, but then there's a slew of other communally oriented rituals that involve um, renewing the village gates, um, rice related rituals, and so really, really complex, yet beautiful sort of round of rituals um, that. Uh, with Christianity, were being were being abandoned, discarded. But at the same time, um, you could say economically and politically, Aka were really struggling as well, um, especially in Thailand and, and in Burma. Um, in Burma, because of war and conflict, and displacement, dispossession, uh, in Thailand, that also was also a factor. Um, not not to the same extent as in Burma. Um, a lot of people came across the border into Thailand in the 1970s and 80s, um, but some of those villages were forcibly re. And quote relocated, uh, although it's 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 you know you can't necessarily say that they're indigenous to Burma per se, um, but they were they also experienced state violence, um, but also a heavy a heavy um, experience of assimilation into Thailand at the same time as they were excluded because they were being denied legal citizenship. So because of that denial um, or having partial citizenship status, um, you know they they had difficulties obtaining higher education. They had difficulties moving around Thailand. There was this within Thailand. They had these internal immigration police checkpoints, and if you ride the bus, which you know many common 
you know, lower, lower class individuals do, including Maniaka, where you're on a, you know, the kind of motorbike you're driving when you pass these status checkpoints, um, you're a flag, you're, you're being profiled and you're pulled over and the police get on and they ask or the immigration authorities and ask for IDs. Yeah. And if you don't have a, you, you, it's still to this day, you have to, um, if you don't have full, full legal citizenship, um, you have what's called a different color card, uh, but also a different number on the ID that, that marks you as a sort of um, temporary permanent resident um, or a Highlander permanent resident, then you need to have an official letter from the local government district office that says where you're going, you know, that you have the, the permission to go and when you're going to be coming back. Otherwise, um, you're going to be extorted. If you want to make it there, you got to pay a bribe to the official and right. or you're going you're to land up in jail. So, um, so these, you know, these factors all together, I, I think, contributed to um, the sort of uh, the loss of language and the loss of culture and community and kind of deg degradation, um, including Christianization, including the, um, the state influences, uh, assimilation pressures and exclusion. So, so I think all of those compounded together. You had this generation and then you had this NGO and um, which was getting a lot of funding from Norway and international organizations um, encouraging, you know, so they, they, one of their big projects was documenting the archaic language I mentioned earlier of these recital, re ritual reciter priests, um, because in those texts, which are, there's a lot of amazing similarities among these um, ritual specialists, whether they're in China or Laos, Burma, Thailand, um, and these texts are, are, are historical documents, but they're oral-based. And so there was a there was a strong movement to document um, that those texts. But that being said, these, these were younger generations, middle aged folks, and so forth, um, who had different ideas about culture. They were much more open to. While this foundation was more about preservation, they were in many ways more um, open to reformation. And so this is where the neo traditional emphasis comes in. So looking at these older, what they understood to be older traditions, and thinking about ways, you know, consciously thinking about ways to um, to reform them in, in the language that came up most often more recently is the language of lightened, lightening the burden um, at the same time as uh, rendering it more meaningful to their contemporary lives. You know, so Aka is a, is a growing, ever-growing number of urban-based Aka, right, who are not living in um, upland villages or, but even, even if they're in lowland cities, they still have strong kinship ties and they're back in the village quite often. People, and there's a lot of, it's almost sort of, um, it's almost like, you know, we talk about nation states these days, but yet there's, you know, there's an incredible, there's incredible um, movement across borders and economies and so forth. We talk about the U.S. and China as sort of these separate spaces and places, but it's almost like an anachronism because the economies are so in bed with each other. They're so, so you could, you could talk about um, in, in a similar way, both um, when we talk about, we think about, we locate Akka in the uplands. Um, Akka have been living in the lowland towns and cities throughout the region for for quite some time now, in significant numbers, especially since the 1980s and so on. Um, and so it's kind of a breaking down those divisions between the uplands and lowlands in, in certain ways. But but the drivers behind this neo-traditionalist movement have mainly been dwelling in urban spaces in Thailand, but also Burma, um, who maintain connections with the, with the villages and upland, uplander Aka in, in the villages and so forth. Um, but I think it's, you know, they're, they're looking... They're looking for a way to adapt uh, this traditional Akaness to a modern urban context and space. Change and adaptation play a big part of your, your research and maybe the Aka story. Um, uh, thinking about your coffee example, uh, what are there others? What are sort of recent economic changes and newfound wealth? Um, what have they meant for the Aka? Sure. Um, 
So uh, apart from coffee, um, which again, I, I, I'll just I'll emphasize that while coffee has brought um, economic wealth, it's also brought constraints and it's brought um, new kinds of dependencies and uncertainties. And I, and I, did, I did mention the debt, the tremendous debt among um, the law Jahaka in general. Okay, yeah. But the other, the other um, key cash crops would be um, rubber, especially in southwest China. Um, but even now, um, there was a boom in the rubber price in the uh, late 1990s, early 2000s. At least in China, that price has dropped significantly. Um, but riding that boom, a lot of Aka in southwest China, a significant number of villagers um, you know, became relatively wealthy, not, not necessarily overnight. There was a lot of sacrifice involved in, in the planting of rubber. Um, there's, a, there's a period where you have to wait for the trees to mature enough to, before you can begin tapping them. And a lot of Aka struggled during that time period. And they also did they continued doing some intercropping, um, but it's it's to the point now where rubber is, dominates the economy. The economy of basically the, the sort of micro economy of Aka, my Aka micro economy in southwest China, um, but they have become so dependent on the rubber, and expecting the higher prices that they were getting before when the prices have dropped, um, people are struggling. People are and some are beginning to lose land and resources in in the, in the China context because of that. The rubber tree is it is Aka labored you know, tapping the rubber. I mean, that, that varies, you know, globally, like who, who owns the, who owns rubber versus who is tapping the rubber? Like what is, what does an Aka rubber tapping operation look like? Yeah. Well, in, in China, at least, um, we don't have the same kind of land issues as in uh, Thailand. One, because Aka in this region have, have ownership, whether it's communal or private individual, that, that's another question, but it is, it is, um, they have title, they have, they have land ownership. It's that, not that's, an absent that's, landlord. No, no. Yeah. I mean, it's it's all the land is owned by the state in, in both contexts, right. but but they have they have communal and or private leases over the land, and these leases often extend for several generations in time. Um, it's uh, so generally speaking, Aka um, no citizenship issues in Southwest China. Land issues um, also generally speaking not not really a factor, not really an issue. There there were significant land reforms uh, led by by the communists in the 1950s and 1960s. Um, redistribution, particularly in terms of ho- household size and so on. So, um, but there's still small scale landholders. I would say, um, I know some that have upwards of several thousand trees. You know, within within that the, they tap on any annual basis, um, and they tap at different time periods. And, and and they have to replant. They cut the they cut the timber down when it's uh, no longer producing, and they can sell that. Um, apparently, it makes good furniture. They sell it for, to furniture makers. Um, the sap obviously is the rubber that they tap, um, and that's that's heavy labor uh, oriented, and it's it has to be done um, usually when it's cooler. So the tappers that, that kind of economy um, late early well usually some some people even go out late evenings when, it, when the sun starts to go down after dinner, uh, they go out they may they may cut around the tree, let some of the sap flow, come back a few hours later and collect it, and then bring that home uh, in the, maybe late morning or so. So it's a, it's a mostly a nighttime oriented activity, um, but there are a number of Aka in Southwest China that have have their own small rubber plantations. Um, some of them are hiring outside laborers, um, including Aka from other parts of the region. Including some some have hired Aka from Burma, for example. Um, I haven't heard of Laos per se, but I have. But I know if, if when you the place that I worked most closely was closest to the Burma border. Um, but I know probably my, I suspect. If you go to the to the southwest part of China, where Aka are based, close to Laos, probably similar kinds of economic relationships taking place, and and then marriages as well. We're seeing some 
small number of um, Aka women from Burma, for example, marrying into um, Aka households in Southwest China. Um, but there's also there's also some cases of um, other non-Aka um, laborers and sometimes in, in, in marriage and migration as well on the part of Hmong, for example, from other regions of China, on the part of some uh, mostly poorer Han Chinese. Um, and uh, it's, um, yeah, there's been some interesting economic changes taking place in the region. Uh, the, the, the other key part of this is tea. So we talked about coffee, we talked about rubber, um, and tea. Tea is now um, experiencing a crazy boom in southwest China. Um, there are villages that overnight are becoming incredibly wealthy, although I think the um, Han Chinese business sort of mediators between these Aka tea growers and, say, the wealthy elite consumers in Shanghai and Hong Kong and Beijing, I think they're, they're probably reaping many more, many more, much more in terms of profits, but, but we're seeing an incredible um, sort of profit being generated from what's happening is you're having some, and this is playing into sort of China's resurgence, reemergence as a global world power and, and the, and the sort of um, generation of incredible amounts of wealth, even though, even as we see incredible inequalities within the China context. Um, so you have a, you know, a wealthy Shanghai businessman or family buying the rights to all the leaves from a particular tree, you know, for something like several hundred thousand yuan or something, you know, or, or a million yuan, depending on the tree. These are these are mostly ancient trees, ancient tea trees, you know, that uh, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years old, if not thousands of years old. Um, and they're tree, tea trees, you know, they're not the bushes that we're used to looking at. Right. And, and they buy the rights to that particular tree, you know, just for their consumption. Um <laughs> And so on. So that, but I, I have not myself. I have not studied that intensively. But I, but I know about it, and other other folks have. I, I'm just it. thinking about the uh, sort of what happened, the sort of the plantation economy, or the uh, especially kind of a, a very sedentary, you know, kind of land use, kind of heavy cultivated crop like like rubber, tea, or, or coffee for that matter. Like, does that is that hard for? Um, uh, would would they would the Aka have been more traditionally? Uh, Sweden agriculturalists uh, in previous generations, like, and, and what does new forms of agriculture do to cultural ways that were defined by other um, pet rhythms of everyday life? Now, now new ones. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, it really depends on the region. Um, I mean, one of the, one of the things that um, that I that I've learned. I mean, it's it's been a good experience, but one of the things I've learned when you when you try to um, when you attempt to to um, do this kind of multi-sided work that goes across borders. It's from, you know, it's inter-village, it's inter-regional, inter international. You realize just how complex it is and how difficult it is to make a general statement about the Aka. They're one thing. As if they're ever, yeah. you know, yeah. it's, it's, to make it that statement in general yeah. is difficult to say, but um, so it really depends on the, the region which and people, the country. Which people, which time, which place, which... Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Because, um, so, so gen but in generally speaking, you, you, you can say that... Uh, you know, up until I would say up until the 1950s, I think is a good a good time period. If you want to talk broadly about the Aka and the, the Upper yeah. Mekong region, you could say they're largely a Sweden shifting cultivator uh, based society. Um, that being said, uh, there's evidence of some Aka sort of confederate confederations of villages. Um, sometimes, in some cases, some cases, 12 or 15 more villages um, established in the same place over a five to six hundred year period. Um, so oftentimes we think of shifting Sweden cultivation. We think of people who are nomadic and moving around. Right. Um, and that, that's, that's a part of the story of Aka, but it's not, it's not the entire story. So you have some Aka, some, 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 some sub, there's different subgroups, different clans. Um, and actually it's kind of interesting because if you look at the history, 
the history of Akka, um, there is a, uh, in, 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 the, in the archaic texts um, and among sort of elders, they will reference uh, historical homeland uh, city-state of Jade. And when they talk about this, this historical homeland, roughly 12th to 13th century, relatively short-lived state homeland um, chieftain, there was ruled by an Akka king for several generations. Um, but they'll, they'll talk about it, depending on who you talk to, they talk about this state and its fall, its collapse in different ways. So when you talk to Akka in northern Thailand, um, which is actually who I mentioned, Leo Alton van, Ge- van Gessel, um, this Dutch, Dutch anthropologist um, whose work, in fact, actually James Scott draws heavily on in his interpretation of uh, Zermia, Zomia, searching for details and specifics that support the, this this. Fascinating. Tell this listeners what, it, what do we mean by Zomia? Uh, so, basically, I mean it, it's 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 a it's a term that comes from uh, a particular group of people who refer to themselves as Zomi. And Willem van Schendel, a geographer, um, he writes an article. I think it's Geographies of Ignorance, um, actually trying to complicate um, the very notion of area studies by 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 inventing and creating this sort of imaginary hypothetical space or area studies in of itself called Zomia that includes much of upland, mainland, Southeast Asia, even Southwest China, um, and even parts of um, South Asia as well in the uplands where, where he works, like Chittagong Hill Tracks and so forth. Um, but he does that as an exercise in sort of saying, you know, just showing the arbitrariness whereby you develop and coin these and create these area studies. And he, he shows us thematic focus, thematic um, overlap in terms of people living in this particular region. Um, and then James Scott later... Um, picks it up and runs with it and and, um, and actually, in some ways, uh, supports almost the kind of uh, what becomes a hypothetical area studies region into an actual area studies region. So we, so we now have this whole, this whole sort of school of Zomi. It's been an incredibly productive discourse. Um, he has a book, um, An Anarchist History of Upland Southeast Asia, How, How Not to Be Governed, An Anarchist History of Upland Southeast Asia. It came out in 2008, just as I was um, in the midst of my PhD research. I was... Uh, yeah, that must have been great, like uh, incredible, like productive, like for your for your sort of imaginary, right? Like right, right. But but the gist of it is that um, the, the the way that Z- that Scott picks it up and reframes it is that Zomia is uh it's it's a it's a space, but it's also a people um, who are essentially char- characterized as being um, almost quintessentially anti-state or anar- anarch- have an anarchist orientation. They've chosen not to be governed. They're not more primitive, quote-unquote. Right, right. It's, an, it's a conscious decision not to right. be part of that. So rather than being, rather than being left behind, right, the, um, the wave of civilization. Which is the state-centered narrative. Right, right, these, right. Are, these are, quote-unquote, backward people that need yeah. to be brought into the, you know, the world religion and progress and whatever. Yeah. Yeah, yeah th- these people have voted with their feet. And they, they move. Yeah. They, but, but not only that, but that they're, they used to be lowland-dwelling peoples who have moved and migrated into the uplands to avoid these expanding lowland They know exactly what society has to offer, and they've chosen to not right. participate in it. Right, right. Yeah. And Scott, you know, Scott, I mean, uh, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a beautifully written book. It has, um, it's, it's, a, it's a great narrative, a great storyteller, but I think the devils is in, are there in the details. And, um, but, but, it, but in that, in terms of the Akka, actually, he, he, at one point he says in the book, it's difficult to imagine a people whose customs and histories and, Practices, you know, uh, could be more anti-state than than the Aka, for example. So they really are the quintessential Aka. But he's drawing heavily on, almost exclusively on, the work, the interpretation of Aka histories and orality and legends through the lens of this Dutch from, Dutch anthropologist yeah. who's working with Aka in the in the far southern 
extreme of migrations. So, so um, that particular, right? But but do the Aka want a state? That's a question. Well, I mean, in some ways, um, at least from from my 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 work, I mean, there's at least a, lo- a lot of Aka who I would talk to. They would they would talk about how you know we don't have a state of our own. We we lack a state of our own, and that's a major obstacle to us, right? In terms of building unity and and and, and um, preserving language and um, reforming culture and so forth. But I think there's a tacit acceptance. There's, there's more or less an acceptance they are, that they are in a non-state position, even though they, um, what would you say, they, they're, at, they're at the point now where I would say they, they have um, positions in particular states. They have access to certain kinds of resources. This, this is the thing that, that James Scott downplays, right, are the fact that states, yes, they can be burdens. They, they, can, they can be a thorn in the side of, of, of individuals you know, in terms of conscription, in terms of taxation in terms of obligation, but they also provide resources and certain kinds of rights and protection for, for their citizens, for their members, and so on. Um, excuse me. So that so those those things, um, Aka, I think, more recently have been able to take advantage of some of these resources and some of these um, connections, actually in building their, their trans-regional identity. Um, so I don't see any tension, per se, um, in terms of these these multiple layers of identity and these kinds of negotiations taking place, even as their their state level positions have sometimes gotten in the way of um, things like things like negotiating a common orthography, for example. So, for example, in China, where you have a very you have a high degree of um, integration and recognition, so Aka are recognized as part of the Hani um, ethno nationality or Minzu in China, Shaoshu Minzu. Um, but also, along with that recognition comes um, came the development of, of, a, of a script, of a language, an orthography, a writing system in the 1950s, 1960s. So they, have, they also have a, an officially recognized script, um, which, interestingly enough, does not use um, special diacritical markers. They use consonants as vowel markers. So it's more akin to what Aka later negotiated um, in terms of a common writing system following the Hmong, for, Hmong, for example. Um, but when... Aka from different parts of the region came together in 2008 in the Maasai meeting I, we mentioned earlier. Um, at the end of that meeting, I thought that they were celebrating a sort of a victory in terms of agreeing to to a, a more common or Aka orthography. But but actually, the one one individual coming from China said that you know I have to now take this back to my Aka um, my Aka colleagues in China and see what they say about it because in China. And and one one of the one of the pleas he made during that meeting was you know he he, he literally so that he would say, you know if we I, I advocate for this particular choice of a vowel or this particular choice of a consonant or a tone marker because in China this this is how it is and and if we if we if we create a system that's too different from the one in China then we're going to have difficulty adopting it in China because we already we're already because of the recognition that we have in China we have less flexibility. With, with negotiating this common aqua orthography. And not only that, but if we go too far and diverge too far, some of the Aka in China and then the Hani with who we're linked up with may actually sort of presume that we're attempting to sort of separate or succeed from, from the union of Hani and maybe even from the state. So it could, there could even be some dangerous implications from that as well. Whereas, whereas in Thailand, no official recognition of, of Aka per se, no official um, state-endorsed orthography, I mean, Anything is fair game, and you have you have multiple orthographies being used, primarily by different um, Christian groups, and then you had this NGO, this sort of neo-traditionalist NGO, who, who developed their own orthography as well. So, um, so there's a sort of 
the lack of recognition in Thailand in some ways um, has allowed for them to experiment a bit more and be a bit more creative with, with, with what they do in terms of Hakka language and culture. Do the thinking about your um, the kind of the crypto nationalism part of your um, your thought process that, that now the 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 Aka do, you know the Thais are which you know are proud of you know never been colonized um, how do the how do the Aka take and adapt kind of this this badge and what does it mean for uh, how they sort of assertion of Aka identity the the badge of not not being colonized. Yeah. Do they, do they, do they, um, do they, uh, I think you, um, you spoke about that in your talk a little, like this kind of a sense of, you know, never been, never been colonized and, uh, they're, they're, they're and maybe that's part of Zomia, that's part of, you know, that they are peoples that are, um, that have evaded the state, uh, or, um, what am I trying to say here? Have, have. Have eluded their have eluded the grasp of the of the of those national actors, or do is that does that factor yeah. into their? Yeah, I think. Well, what what I was doing was um, I was looking at the concept of crypto colonialism developed by Michael Hertzfeld, who, who explicitly talks about places like um, Greece and Thailand that, having never been colonized, nevertheless, um, you could say, were constrained in their. Um, modernization, you know, sort of nationalization efforts by colonial powers, especially by European colonial powers. And so, um, and he says that the very, at least in the, looking at Thailand and Greece, he said it is, it is their very celebratory claim to having never been colonized that marks them as distinctly crypto-colonial spaces because there were these indirect yet, you know, yet, 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 yet um, very real constraints on how they went about fashioning the nation, even though they were not directly colonized. Um, or the way to like change strategy and others like you know that they have talked about like Thailand's like you know sort of border lost territories kind of have, have in, in some ways been a completely fixated uh, uh, kind of a sense of national um, trauma and and identity right by yeah, by yeah. a place that was never colonized yeah and yeah and even even the contemporary um, territorial borders and boundaries of Thailand are, are complete byproduct of the colonial process and, and uh, this sort of um, why the Mekong River, right, is the, is now the official border between, yeah. at least in Laos and Thailand, even though there's, you know, Laos-speaking peoples on, on, on both sides and, and so on. So that so I, w- I was looking at that example um, and um, looking at the concept of nationalism in relation to Aka and came up with this concept of crypto-nationalism, uh, a similar kind of frame but yet distinct in terms of um you know having having sat with lots of Aka from different parts of the region and having um heard again and again you know we are a people without a state of our own um but then recognizing over time um that uh they had this discourse of not having a state of their own but yet in many ways um but also also claiming you know adamantly claiming that they were not engaged in any kind of state making practice or exercise um, so really the way it was framed as is as a kind of um, some even said well, you know we're building a virtual nation right a virtual mm. nation that uh, it's um, it's non-territorialized right it, it exists wherever Aka are in, in this sort of uh, checkerboard kind of space you could say um, 
and, and, that, and they so, even visually try to represent this in some of their logos and some of their right, yeah. right, right. So, 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 and you know, there, there was, be, and part of it has to do with what I, you know, the reality that I observe, but also the sensitivity and the positionality of Aka as a border dwelling people. Um, it was much more sensitive, you know, in the nineteen during the Cold War up until the end of the Cold War, even up in as recently as nineteen eighties and nineties. Um, their positioning, you know, on the border region, you know, with the potential communist sympathizers and so forth. Um, th this came much more heavily down on the Hmong and and, the, and other groups like the um, the Yao or um, or Mian and so forth. But uh, but the Aka also have also long been suspect in, in that particular way, and, and part of that explains, I think, their their lack of citizenship, full legal citizenship status in Thailand, the denial of that. Um, but um, but that's another topic. Uh, um, so. So sort of thinking about this discourse of being a people without a state of our own, um, but yet here, you know, here they are engaged in this explicitly transnational, international project that's um, transcending borders, um, but also... Do, do the states see, the relatively states, see them as valuable, particular uh, mediators in this, in these attempts to, for international trade between Thailand and China, between Burma and... Like, do, do, do the states view them as a, a useful... Um, as, as agents to help um, facilitate, you know, they have these connections. Uh, have they been tapped by, uh, maybe, maybe the business community, it sounds like already um, uh, see the value in some of their, in some of their connections um, across borders. Do the, do you think the states view it that way as well? So, some of them do. And uh, China in particular has long, has long had this particular view um, initially, 50s up until maybe the 80s, it was more um, concerned with uh, succession and separatism, I would say. Although, you know, not, not as much in relation to Tibetans and Uyghurs and so forth, but certainly that, that's, that's an issue on their radar. Um, in 1993, uh, Han, Hani um, intellectuals, government officials in China organized uh, the first international conference on Hani, Hani culture. Or Hani, and later, later the acronym Aka was added as well to this. It was held in, in Kunming in Yunnan, China. Um, and there were Aka who joined that, that conference from Thailand, from Burma, and from Laos as well. And that was encouraged by the Chinese. It was good. All, yeah. all the funding, I mean, they, they, had, they had to get approval, you know, from Beijing. In China, everything is very centralized. It has sure. to go up from one layer to the next to the bureaucracy. So approval came from, from Beijing. Funding came from the local government in um, Yunnan Prefecture and Province. And... Um, I think that represents this sort of turning point, you know, looking at um, looking at these co-ethnic groups, these groups that have these transnational ethnic ties and so forth, looking at them rather as a kind of um, as a uh, problem to looking at them as a resource to tap into in promoting trans-regionalism and promoting um, business, economic, political, cultural ties across borders and so on. So, so I think that's a, that's a turning point that I see in 1993. Um, Thailand, and to be honest, um, situation in Burma and Laos is a bit different. Um, Thailand, is, they still see them as problematic. And um, even though a good, a significant number um, are now, what would you say, um, have these cross-border ties, economic business ties, that's helping to drive development and, 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 and issues in, in northern Thailand. The, the government is not looking to them in, in the same way the Chinese government is looking to them. And it's enigmatic because... There are there are pros and cons with the Chinese. This more official recognition, 
Um, it also comes with more maybe sort of surveillance and control, mm. but 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 definitely um, defined like legal space uh, for their uh, you know like official recognized you know ethnic minority as where in Thailand it's it, there's more there's more f- freedom but also less. Uh, I mean, wh- what do you do? You, do you think? How do you think the groups view each other across borders? They think, well, it's it's a better it's a better fate to be in the Chinese kind of basket than the Thai one, or in terms of the, the sort of their state. Um, I mean, Big Brothers is too strong a word, but the but the um, state control or and, and maybe support. Yeah, it's um, it depends who you talk to, but in general. The Aka, because you know, one one thing that I um, found interesting was when I when I went to that meeting in two thousand eight in Maasai, at the time I, I had a pretty good idea there were Aka in Thailand and northern and eastern Burma. I did I didn't know there were Aka in China. I didn't know there were Aka in Laos, and there I was in this meeting. And Aka had come from Laos and come from China. Later on, when I was doing more long term field work, um, and I did it with my uh, who now is my is my spouse Hai Ying Li, but she was doing a master's degree at Chiang Mai University, coming from China. She didn't realize that they were Aka in Thailand, and in other in parts of Laos and Burma. Um, so you know, there's this, and, and then we as we started going out to villages in northern Thailand, and, and my wife introduced herself, you know, as by name, but also by clan and genealogy, and then and then, and then saying she was, "Where are you from?" They, she would say, "From China," and um, they some Aka didn't really didn't re- didn't really register. They, they didn't know that there were still Aka living in, in China. For them, yeah. China was more sort of the. They knew they were, you know, they had association of an ancestral homeland state. They're historically, maybe, yeah. but they didn't realize. That yeah, yeah. So you know, every every day, every day, I, didn't reala- I had, like, had not realized that. You know, that you had talked about them. That 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 there's not. So obviously, there's not a strong, and maybe that's what these, uh, you know, these get-togethers to try to, um, to try to promote, uh, the sense of. But clearly, if there are many, including your, you know, your. Now, wife, who's who was, <laughs> who who's a master's program had never had never dawned on her. Obviously, that wasn't part of the discourse like mm. locally in in her Chinese Aka world. Right, right. I mean, it, you know, it was it was it has been for some time for a kind of select group of Aka yeah. officials and NGO workers and um, who have been moving across borders. And um, I mean, there, there you know there are different groups that have different histories of migration, and so there are some there are some Aka. For example, associated with the Ubia or the Pami Pami village in northern Thailand, um, who within who basically fled China during the Communist Revolution in the fifties and and sixties. But they're a small, relatively small number in northern Thailand. The majority of the Aka are, are, are the Aka that have come much, um, actually came over a much longer period of time south, following the fall of that that Jade homeland. Um, and then there are others who came more recently in from Burma. Um, so in general, I think the every every day, but now but now things have changed. I would say this 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 began changing in the late in the in the nineteen nineties and the early two thousands. Um, there was a uh, probably the most famous Aka singer. He passed away in two thousand and three. Um, his name was Jabo. Uh, he was coming from Southwest China. He, he he gained kind of regional fame in Southwest China, but also national fame, recognized as a national artist. But um, he actually his his music and his songs are all about um, traditional Aka culture, but he does it in a way that sort of integrates or integrated like um, pop and hip hop. And um, yeah, thanks to you. I heard some, it was, it was kind of interesting. Uh, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. 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 So he, so he, he, the language that he used appealed to the older generations, 
but the way in which he did it appealed to the younger generations. And so he's right. He's um, anyway. He he was invited by um, the Aka. Um, what's it called? The Aka Foundation. Um, this is supposed to be a non-denominational Chomrom Aka, and they protect Thai. This sort of uh, yeah, the Aka Aka Association of Thailand, um, non-denominational. They invited him to come and do it, give a performance in Northern Thailand in two thousand and two or one or something, just just before he passed away. Um, and and that that's part of this um, this movement, I would say, Aka becoming more aware, more strongly aware of uh, the fact that there are Aka residing in China. Laos and and, and uh, Burma and Thailand, and so these 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 individuals have been facilitating these kinds of ties and through the through the sort of face to face direct engagement. Um, I was at a international festival, a, a New Year New Year's ancestral festival held on the New Year's occasion in two thousand and eight, um, no two thousand and nine maybe, it was. Uh, it was held in Takilek across the border from Maasai in Burma, and at that festival. They invited a whole a whole troupe of performers from China, Laos, and Thailand to perform. Um, but the group from China they, they were the highlight of the of the of the performance. And um, so pop culture is paying paying playing a pretty prominent role, I would say, in, in promoting this consciousness. But but that being said, you asked about the um, how Aka in different states perceive um, the Aka in other states. So in general, the Aka who you know who were involved in these these conferences in '93. Um, you might say these are more elite, you know, a little bit more better off urban-based Aka um, who had traveled across borders for various reasons, interacted with Aka in other parts of the region. In general, those in Thailand saw Aka and China as being in a much better off position. I mean, there was the politically, economically, actually politically and economically um, and socially, they were perceived as being in a much better off position by virtue of their recognition. Um, and again, in Thailand, in contrast, by their sort of lack of recognition and still facing fundamental obstacles to to human rights like language and and, and not even like being having uh you know uh citizenship or right right so so that in a sense but at the same time um interestingly enough as Aka from china growing numbers began coming across the borders for to interact with Aka in thailand um they began to perceive of Aka in, in thailand as being um as, ha- as having maintained or retained more of their traditional culture, so you had this. So, so you, and, and you even had. I, I was. I, I attended a couple of meetings, gatherings where um, they arranged for a kind of cultural study tour of Aka officials and individuals, leaders, from, particularly from the um, the Mong Lao region, which is where the train is now running across this high speed. I don't know how, how, how high speed it is, but this. Fast train, higher speed, <laughs> higher speed train is running right from Vientiane to Kunming. Just opened up last Friday, December third. Um, I've gone along that road. Oh yeah, listeners, get on that. Years, uh, yeah, tell yeah. us about it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was um, there's a road. I, I I've gone along the highway. I can't I can't even tell you how many times. You know, alongside of which that train, that railway track was being built, and now it's it's finally finished. It crosses the border of Mohan into Baden. And that's Mong Lao right there, where the Aka that I'm talking about came from. Um, but the local Aka Association, they local government funded the trip. They came, you know, at that time across the, on on the road on on tour vans and buses across the Mekong River at Chiang Kong, and then down into there's now a bridge which makes that much faster um, into this one village called Loja in northern Thailand to literally literally sit down with the elders in that village and the ritual specialists and ask them questions um, about the village gate because um, you know, the communists in, in large part were so effective in eradicating 
these practices post 1950 1960 yeah. so and, and this has been this has been there, a, there was no common memory of how to do this or well i mean it's it, 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 it's 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 sketchy it's it's touchy you know yeah. it depends on the individual the village and the individual but maybe in not, general, not a lot of wide birth of lived experience in doing it no yeah. no no yeah so some would um yeah particularly in terms of it, it was a pretty effective anti-superstitious anti-superstition campaign you know harassment of shamans harassment of ritual reciter priests um you know who were prevented from practicing prevented from developing their practices because shamans you know shamans are chosen by the spirits but you need to have an apprenticeship in order to really cultivate and develop your abilities and so i know of several cases of individuals who are shamans but who are you know effectively unable to carry out that apprenticeship and, and cultivate their shaman shamanic healing abilities um specifically because they were chastised and harassed and oftentimes it was by aka cadres in their own village right who mm. were carrying out the orders of the yeah. of the state and being turned in and so on so um, so that is, it, it's, it, it was a very effective anti-superstition campaign, suppression, suppression of, you know, and, and a lot of it was, um, it's sad because it's, uh, but it's, but what's happening now is at least a, a good number of Aka in Southwest China are looking to some Aka in Thailand, traditionalist, in, in this process of selectively revitalizing or vitalizing some of these practices. So one village I know, um, they held their first ancestral offering probably in, 60, 70 years, uh, just a few years back. And they did it by way of uh, a book that they created, a kind of manual, an Aka language-based manual, uh, which is, it's actually referred to as the, uh, the, the book for carrying the Aka way, or the ancestral ways. Wow. And one of those, it has this sort of standardized, simplified, written, codified manual for going about this ritual process. Step by step, here's what you do. Yeah, yeah. So they reinstall, but, but they, this village... I say selectively revitalizing it because in the, in the Thai context, the majority of Aka groups in Thailand, they, um, it's, a very, it's very much a household-level practice. You know, we, we think of religion as a kind of institution. You go to a church or a mosque or, or a building, a centralized space. Among, among Aka, most Aka, I would say, a significant number, it's, it's a household-based practice that has communal dimensions. But you yeah. go, you have your ancestral altar in your household. You, you know, it's the, the head of the household, the couple. It's individualized and... Yeah, in many yeah. ways. So this kind of it's very deeply grounding uh, practices. But in China, they they revitalized the ancestral altar in a communal fashion, um, and so they created this sort of central ancestral house slash living cultural museum. And at the top of it, on the, on the second floor, they recreated a traditional Aka style house, and they have the ancestral altar on the female side of the. With the there's a partition between the traditional houses between the male and the female side, and the female side is where the ancestral altar is located, because that's actually farthest away from the main entrance you know so it's sort of a more sacred space um and uh, anyway so so i was able to um to see that see that process you know i, I have been doing work on this neo-traditionalist movement from 2008 up until that time and so you know almost 10 well nine years later i was able to see how it was it was having ripple effect it was it was it was being it was going across borders in the form of this book and certain aka were actually actively revitalizing some of these traditions um, as I was saying in the past, that this, this anti-superstition campaign on the part of the, of the Chinese state, the communist state, um, you know, it didn't it didn't recognize that these rituals, the ancestral offerings, the animal sacrifices, they, they were a form of community work. You know, it wasn't just about appeasing the spirits and the ancestors. It was also about organizing society, society, and building solidarity, um, and maintaining intergenerational ties and so forth. And a lot, a lot of that is breaking down. So as this is, you know, one of the implications of 
the movement from this shifting cultivation to more cash crop society is um, we're beginning to see more and more inequalities within Aka villages. Um, an implication of the, the loss of the language on the younger people as well. Uh, we're beginning to see, you know, kind of dis a disconnect between the young and the old. And uh, so that's, these, these are all kinds, these, these kinds of issues, I would say, are the main issues that, that at least the Aka new traditionals I was working with are trying to, trying to redress and, and, and deal with in different ways, depending on the context. Well, it sounds like you've got no shortage of uh, research subject material uh, to work on. Um, you should, uh, you should come back and uh, we could have, uh, we could bring a whole gang and, uh, and here we uh, do, uh, we need to get more Aka scholars on our campus. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe we can certainly invite, you know, Ying Misol. Uh, yeah. And there's, there's now, there's now a, um, I was asked to be an external committee member uh, for a, um, an Aka scholar from Taiwan who's up at University of Wisconsin-Madison. His name is um, Po Tao Chang. And his, um, he, um, his, on the side of his mother, he has Aka ancestry, which, uh, very interesting story, but, uh, but he, he's mostly working with Aka in Northern Thailand. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We gotta, we gotta get, we got Misuo and your, 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 your hmm. buddy from, uh, from Madison in here. Yeah, yeah. Great story to tell. Um, Hey, well, uh, we uh, thank you for, we, we know where to reach you. Uh, if, uh, if folks want to learn more, is there like a, uh, um, any, any plugs, any uh, like on, on the web or, or an article, a book, like uh, some YouTube and what, what, where should they look for? Um, uh, Aka is A-K-H-A for the... Uh, A-K-H-A. Um, I've written um, a few articles. I'm working on a book manuscript at the moment called uh, Born Again Pagans, uh, that's, but that, who knows how long that will be in, in process and, and, and until even in press. But um, there's, um, yeah, a, a, a K H A. if in, in Aka language they write it as A-Q-K-A-Q, -A -Q. that's probably the most common um, way of writing that. You can find, you, Aka have a YouTube presence. Um, if you go under YouTube and type A-Q-K-A-Q, -A -Q, uh, maybe music, you may, you, you'll probably find whole listservs of uh, yeah. you know, Aka from Thailand, especially are pretty heavy in putting stuff on there from Burma. Um, otherwise, there's you know the, my, there's myself, there's a prominent Aka scholar I mentioned earlier, Ayu or Jinhua Wang, uh, J-I-A-N-H-U-A, Wang, W-A-N-G. We recently published uh, an article on Asian ethnolo ethnology, looking at, uh, it's called Where the Rubber Meets the Road looking at um, changing resource frontiers and Aka cultural identities in, it's a great in Southwest China. <laughs> yeah, and then, there's, and then there's other scholars like Deborah Tooker, um, who is a uh, sort of long-established long scholar of Aka, um, particularly in Northern Thailand. She's written several books um, and articles, uh, Cornelia Camera, um, and, uh, and so forth, yeah. Well, great. Well, thanks, uh, thanks again, and uh, yeah, join us next time for another interesting episode of uh, Southeast Asia Crossroads. Thank you for having me. Pleasure. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Southeast Asia Crossroads. We would like to give thanks to Tantrakun for the use of his track "Electric Can." And a thanks to our audio producer, Amelia McCoy. Thank you for joining us, and we hope you tune in next time.